there a shadowy, secret cabal of sinister power mongers that practice satanic rituals, traffic children, and pull the levers of our government and media in an attempt to enslave the world? Was Jeffrey Epstein killed to prevent the truth from being exposed? Is Donald Trump the only messiah figure able to take down the deep state and save us from this demonic Illuminati? What if a mysterious internet prophet known as Q is the only one who can reveal the truth? Maybe that sounds pretty wild to you. Maybe you're listening and you go, actually, I totally believe all of that or part of that. Whatever the case may be, I think you're going to be really interested in today's episode. We're talking with Bonnie Christian, a journalist who's been tracking the conspiracy theory movement known as QAnon. And we discuss why many people, including Christians, have become attracted to these sorts of conspiracies. How does the Church of Q, yes, they actually called themselves a church, latch on to ideas in Christian theology and warp them? How are many people who have never heard of QAnon still influenced by ideas emerging from the dark corners of the internet? And how does this movement actually act as a substitute religion for people searching for meaning. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bonnie Christian, author and journalist who's a contributing editor at The Week. Her work has also been featured in Christianity Today, USA Today, Time Magazine, and a whole bunch of more <laughs> news outlets. Bonnie is also the author of A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. And, and she actually graduated with the same master's in Christian thought degree from the same seminary as me. So it was really fun to sit down and talk with Bonnie today. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad we were talking before you are in the Twin Cities area. It's, it's good to hear that you and your your family are safe in, in the middle of this. I mean, we're probably going to be releasing this on uh, the, f- the following Monday, and hopefully things will have died down a little bit by that by that time here in the Twin Cities. So it's it's a it's a crazy time to try to even carve out headspace to talk about something different than this. So I appreciate you being willing and available to do that. Yeah, no problem. And thank you for having me. Well, maybe let's start a little bit uh, just to introduce listeners to a little bit of some relevant autobiography. Uh, autobiographical um, background on you to let people know a little bit of your experiences and uh, and your your you know formative experiences and just some of the more important uh, professional experiences that you've had in your life. Sure. Um, well, so professionally, I uh, I went to uh, I did my undergraduate work in political science and I worked in nonprofit politics uh, in in Washington the Washington D.C. area for a few years after college, um, and I realized that if I wanted to write about um, ideas more than sort of organizational stuff like come to our meeting, uh, that I would need to have uh, additional education, and so that was when we moved out to the Twin Cities for me to go to seminary at Bethel, um, where you also have uh, gone to school. Um, And so I graduated from there in 2016. And then while I was working there, or while I was at school there, and um, in the years since, uh, I have moved away from um, the communications work I was doing before and and moved into full-time writing, mostly journalism, but I also published a, a book of lay theology in uh, 2018 called A Flexible Faith. Um, and so these days, the the work I'm doing, um, I have sort of like three long-term um, freelancing positions. One is I'm a fellow at a small foreign policy think tank called Defense Priorities. Um, and so they place articles I write at a wide variety of outlets. Um, one is I'm a contributing editor at uh, an outlet called The Week. And so I write a number of columns for them every week. Um, and then lastly, and most recently, I'm also newly the political columnist for Christianity Today. That's great. How, how do you feel, not to not that we want to make an advertisement for a shared uh, seminary institution, but it's interesting to me to see you writing in all these sorts of diverse fields. Uh, how do you feel like even that process of going to seminary, we both... We're in the same sort of niche program. There's not a lot of people that do the Christian thought program 
which I usually just tell people is philosophical theology because mm-hmm. most people have no idea what that means by Christian thought. How do you feel a little bit like that That preparation um, got you ready to think about things in a, a vast array of different domains? Yeah, well, what I liked about the, the Christian thought program and why I chose it over, say, the more uh, traditional um, theological studies program is that it was very much outward facing. And so um, instead of sort of focusing only on the the conversations that we're having inside of the church and in our own theological thinking, uh, it, it was always tending to be, you know, about the church and science or the church and uh, you know, social ethics. So engaging with sort of the broader culture and the broader um, social and, and political conversation. And that of course is very much um appropriate for the work that I'm doing uh, to make those connections and not be stuck in either solely the the political conversation or solely the theological side of things. Mm. It was something I'd read recently. I've, I've been following a bit of your work, I think maybe over the last year or so. I, I don't remember who first turned me on to it, but then I'd, I saw that you were a, a fellow alumnus and it was just a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, when I was reading a piece that you wrote in the week about something that I actually wasn't familiar with in its specificity, this this QAnon movement. I wasn't uh, familiar with that title, so I was very fascinated by it. But as I began to read, I became really familiar with how I've actually encountered many of these ideas in this movement. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about this piece with you together that you wrote in the week. In it, you talked about how 76% of Americans have no idea what this QAnon thing is, which is spelled Q, capital A-N-O-N, for those that are maybe wanting to do a Google search, or maybe they shouldn't Google search. I don't know, maybe there's a better way of doing some background digging on it. 76% of Americans have no idea what it is what is this this QAnon and why should people, especially those who follow Jesus, which make up the probably the vast majority of the listeners to this program, why should they care? Sure. So the QAnon is a, a big thing and it's a lot of things and there are definitely variations within the movement. Um, people who, who come to it for different reasons and believe sort of different versions of it. The really like 30,000 feet view, um, the definition that I, I gave in that that article you've referenced is essentially this idea that there is a cabal of powerful figures in government, business, academia, and the media. Um, and they are not only you know running much of our society for malicious purposes, but they are engaging in really horrific child sex trafficking and also satanic rites of sacrifice. Um, and so there's this figure that they call Q, or the, the longer title is Q Clarence Patriot. Um, it's an anonymous person, thus the Anon in QAnon, um, who posts these updates on um, anonymous web forums. First, a site called 4chan, and at this point, it's it's migrated to a couple sites. It's on a site called 8kun. Um Post these updates on these sites anonymously, provides like a, a numeric code, password sort of thing to verify that it is the same person each time. Um, and they make essentially predictions often um, or, or revelations about uh, people and things that are happening in politics. And the followers of QAnon, they read these, these posts, um, they call them few drops or breadcrumbs. They read them and they study them very carefully and they try to find correspondences with like sort of, it's often very vague. They try to find correspondences with the hints in like the headlines of the time. That's so oh, sweet. and the, the final yeah. piece. Right, right. Because I mean, this seems like an obscure the, corner of the yeah. internet, right? Where you might the, think, why should, why should we dedicate any time to talking right. about this? The final piece is that um, President Trump is their hero and they very much believe that he is actively working to expose these satanic pedophiles and that any day now he's going to just announce mass arrests of all these very bad people who chief among them is Hillary Clinton. They're all going to get arrested. Maybe some of them are going to get executed for their horrible crimes. And so, you know, there's this champion in the White House and 
going to happen real soon. We don't know exactly when, but he's working behind the scenes to expose all this. And so you'll see um, in photos of, of many Trump rallies, you'll see people wearing, you know, like they'll say, have shirts with a big Q on it. And that's indicating their support. And Trump has on a couple occasions retweeted people on Twitter who are involved in the movement or even on at least one case retweeted a tweet that had QAnon hashtags in it. And so they take this to mean, you know, he's confirming their theories. He's confirming his behind the scenes work that they believe he's doing. I wasn't familiar with that term QAnon, but as I was reading your piece and then started going, man, I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with some of these ideas it reminded me of something that was floating around the internet. Maybe it was a couple of years ago. Um, something called Pizzagate. How? I mean, how is? First of all, I mean, there's probably listeners to this podcast that know what Pizzagate is. They've heard of it, and then there's like many other, probably most Americans have never even heard of that. What is? I mean, what was the link between that term? What is Pizzagate and this sort of? idea that there's this secret cabal and an Illuminati group that's practicing human trafficking with children and satanic rituals. Is there, what is the connection between those two? Yeah. So Pizzagate, I think is most Americans like definite uh, frame of reference for QAnon if they know about it at all. Um, and there's a story at the Atlantic, which I reference in my piece. And if you have, you know, show notes or something, we should link it there, which gives sort of starts. It's a big profile of QAnon and it starts with the Pizzagate story and goes into much more detail about it than I will. But the gist of it is that um, this was in uh, December of 2016, right after the, the last election. This guy from North Carolina goes up to Washington, D.C. He has... Um, several loaded guns, including an AR-15. And he, he drives to this little pizzeria called Comet Ping Pong. You could play ping pong while you waited for your pizza. Um, and he storms in expecting that he's going to rescue trafficked children from the basement of the pizzeria. And he believed this because of QAnon. Um, there was this, one of the, the theories was that um, this pizza place was a cover for a, a child sex trafficking operation and that it was participated, that the operation involved um, key high ranking figures of the Hillary Clinton campaign. And they got to this by reading um, leaked emails that came out during the, the election um, from her campaign. And it was stuff like they thought that when they were talking about ordering cheese pizzas, it was about like little girls and ordering pepperoni pizzas with little boys, or maybe it's the other way around, something like that. Um, and so this man sincerely thought, and by all accounts, he's like a pretty normal guy. Like he goes to church. I believe he had kids of his own. He, he was not like, you know, some he was normal. He he seemed like a reasonable person and he thought he was going to save children. And so he rolls in with his guns, Everybody panics because he's got an AR-15. And it turns out this building doesn't even have a basement, let alone mm. a basement full of trafficked children. Like it was just entirely false, entirely made up. And based on this really bizarre, like these were normal pe emails about ordering pizza from a place where they liked to have pizza. Like it, it, there was just nothing to it at all. And so now he's in jail and, you know, his life and his family's life is ruined by this conspiracy theory. So, but what would be the, even the appeal of it? I guess, like, why would somebody, like you said, that by all accounts seemed like a, maybe a, a fairly normal guy, church attending, raising a family, uh, there has to be some sort of shred of evidence to this stuff, right? I mean, isn't there, and you see things like um, the link between Pizzagate and the, the QAnon movement and the conspiracies around Jeffrey Epstein and you know, it's it's hard for people. I think probably one one conspiracy that might be widely accepted as true is that Jeffrey Epstein didn't commit suicide. What is it about this stuff that actually leads people to think there could be something, at least enough evidence there for a guy to roll into a, a pinball place? I mean, gosh, it sounds like stuff out of Mr. Robot or The Matrix, right? What, what would yeah. give somebody the idea that this is like, I'm so certain of this, I'm going to roll into this and, and act this way in a way that could get me in a lot of trouble, but I think I'm going to rescue some kids. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, 
the child element of it, you know, is, is very like once you've bought in, if you think that there's any seriousness to it, the idea that there's these kids in danger, you know, that's incredibly compelling and will make, you know, many, many people who are normally peaceful people would do something violent for, for if they thought children were in real danger. So that's a, a, a big piece of it. But I think the bigger thing um, really has to do with conspiracy theories and their appeal in general. Um, and so like, let's take the Epstein case, for example, when people say, you know, oh, it's in, in this case, yes, it's plausible that he did not kill himself, right? Like he's this very powerful man. It looks like he's finally going down. Um, he's finally going to be convicted for for things that uh, crimes against children that have been suspected for years. He has these powerful connections. Um, people do get murdered in prison. Is it possible that he was murdered to prevent him from, you know, handing over some of his powerful friends to the cops? Yes, it's possible. On the other hand, to say that it is totally impossible that he killed himself um, to, to requires a view of our justice system that is wildly inaccurate. Um, jailhouse suicides are a national epidemic. They're, they're far more common than many people realize. If you Google something like prison guard or jail guard laughs, um, it's even worse if you add death. There's there's news story on news story of prison guards laughing while people die. Um, and so the idea that it's inconceivable that the guards would be so callous or so um, incompetent or so heartless and lazy that he would be able to get away with killing himself, um, especially while facing down a likely life sentence in prison where, you know, prison culture is notorious for permitting violence against people who have hurt children is that that doesn't really strike me as very difficult to believe. So I think the, the appeal, conspiracy theories are interesting in that um, in some ways they're very simple and in some ways they're very complex. They're complex in that they draw together bits of information and people and events that appear to be unrelated. And they say, look, I have this explanation that pulls all this in together and explains it. Um, and it, and it seems, and it's very complicated and it seems like it's a, a very, you know, precise, nuanced, researched thing. Um, but they're very, and so they reject the simpler explanation of like, he killed himself. Mm -hmm. um, but they're very simple in another way. Um, they're simple in the, the prescription for what needs to be done to fix the problem. So if in, in the case of QAnon, um, the, the solution is very simple. It's President Trump arrests all these bad people and stops them from ruining our country. Um, in the case of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein, the solution is very simple. It's you don't let all these bad people murder this guy before he can expose them. Um, but in reality, the, the solution is probably going to be a lot more complex, right? Like if he really did just kill himself, and the solution to preventing things like that is massive and very multifaceted prison reform. It's a lot slower. It's a lot less dramatic. It's a lot less fun. It's going to take, you know, so much more time. It's going to require so much more work. Um, it's not satisfying. And so, uh, you know, they, they want this magic bullet and the conspiracy theory offers a magic bullet that's going to make everything right um, and reality tends to be much more nuanced. Like the people who are involved are not necessarily evil. Maybe they're just ordinary, greedy, incompetent, lazy people who are serving themselves. Um, and that's a lot messier and more difficult to deal with. And so I think people turn to conspiracy theories often because they're hoping, they're, they're looking and they're seeing real problems in the world. And the, the actual means of fixing them seems so insurmountable that they want a different answer. Mm. That's interesting because on, on one level, like you're saying, it, it seems like these conspiracies feel incredibly complex. We've all seen the the meme of, uh, I forget what show it's from, with the guy pointing to the wall oh, and connecting Glenn, all... Glenn Beck's old charts. Yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. We've all seen that stuff. I think we've all, uh, you know, we've all been culturally shaped by movies like The Matrix. And there's this appeal for people like possibly to see this Q figure. Oh, as... I just lost your audio. Are you still there? Can you hear oh, me? Yes, now I can. Sorry about that. 
what I was saying was that um, we've all seen those sorts of, you know, the memes of, of people pointing to conspiracies on a wall and connecting all the dots. And we've all had maybe a, a certain degree of cultural conditioning by movies like The Matrix to go, hey, if there's a Morpheus figure that shows up and says, follow the white rabbit, you need to follow the white rabbit, which I even noticed as I was doing some digging on this stuff, watching, like you said, some uh, Trump rallies where there's people wearing Q shirts. I've also noticed like Q shirts with white rabbits on them. And so there does seem to be a bit of appeal, like, is this Q kind of like a Morpheus figure? And is, is he offering us the red pill, which has also become a term, right, used in some of these circles, take the red pill, which kind of as a side note is I think it was like created, created quite a controversy last week or two weeks ago when Elon Musk mm-hmm. hopped on Twitter and said, take the red pill, right? None, none of us want to be like, the blue pill takers. None of us want to be blindly deceived. So, you know, on one level, these claims seem really, really complex. And as you're saying, the solutions might be overly simplistic. How do you actually take the time to evaluate the claims in and of themselves? How could you evaluate? You hear someone bringing up some ideas that are either adjacent to the the QAnon movement or they come directly off of the 4chan websites. Mm -hmm. How do you evaluate yeah. this? So I don't have by any means like an encyclopedic knowledge of what the QAnon movement has claimed. I will say, though, that I think something that's really easy and instructive to do is to look at the very first uh, two posts that QAnon made. And this was in late October of 2017. Um, and so the very first post said that the process was already underway to arrest Hillary Clinton that extradition agreements were in motion so that if she tried to flee the country, other countries would give her back so she could be arrested, um, that there would be massive riots over her arrest, and that uh, U.S. Marines would conduct the arrest operation and the National Guard would be motivated, would be mobilized to deal with the riots in major cities. And then a couple hours later, it said that Hillary Clinton had already been detained, even though she wasn't arrested yet, um, and made a couple other predictions as well. And so it said that all of this would happen on October 30th, 2017. Well, none of it happened. It was, right. it was all completely false. Um, and, but then remarkably on November 1st, he pops up again and issues a bunch more predictions. Says that like Hillary Clinton advisor, John Podesta will be arrested on November 4th. Says that President Trump is going to use the national emergency broadcast system to send us all the truth right to our text messages so that he doesn't have to rely on the fake news. Um, which will distort reality. And again, November 4th comes and goes, none of this happens. And so like from the very get-go, it's nonsense, it's it's lies, um, it's predictions that did not come true. And, you know, I think as Christians, you, there's that, that verse, and of course I'm forgetting where it is now, but it, it says to test prophecies and consider yeah. whether they, they actually are proven or not. Um, now, subsequent QAnon posts, they're not always that specific. Um, they, they don't always give a date like that where you can point to it and say, look, it did not happen. Uh, a lot of times they tend to be, and I think these are, are a lot of what keeps people in the movement. They tend to be very vague, um, vague enough that pretty much whatever happens, there'll be a headline you can point to and say, look, it was fulfilled. And those are much more difficult to push back on. If someone is really bought in and we have a lot of accounts um, of people buying into the point that they become estranged from their families, marriages are broken up, parents are you know, refusing to speak to their children. If someone has bought into that degree, then I don't, I don't know that any argument um, is going to help them see that these posts are, are so, so vague as to be you know, able to be fulfilled no matter what happens. At that point, there's just a refusal to listen to reason. It seems like uh, the, the goalposts are always moving with mm-hmm. these sorts of predictions, the intentionality of the vagaries of them, the vagaries of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even I've noticed in reading some of them that there will be things like um, abbreviations uh, embedded in posts that are like, you know, just potentially uh, abbreviations for different yeah, things. Yeah, potentially abbreviations yeah. for different things. And then people have room for debate. And it actually reminds me a lot. I, and maybe you can relate to this too, um, Bonnie, is uh, growing up in a Christian culture as an 80s and 90s kid. 
I don't know what was going on, but we were just so, and maybe it was just our particular stream or church tradition, we were just so into eschatology and the weird dispensationalist end time stuff and the charts and the crafts. And I used to watch this guy. He was pretty big in Detroit where I grew up. Um, his studio was in Troy, Michigan. His name was Jack, Jack Van Impey. And Jack Van Impey uh, seemed like a really nice guy. His wife seemed really nice too. I, I don't, I actually don't think they were malevolent in any way. I think they were actually very sincere. And every week they'd have a, sto- uh, a news program where they would highlight headlines from the news and point to how this is going to show that Jesus is returning at this time and this, this is going to happen. And these things, you know, they never actually happened. Um, they all seem to be an opportunity to go, well, you know, Biblical prophecy is vague enough. And I, I was wondering, even just hearing you talk, whether or not the appeal to a lot of Christians is are Christians that have actually been in those sorts of environments where there is this sort of end times, you know, everyone's talking about speculative eschatology, and it just maps on really well to this sort of, well, the goalposts move, this is cryptic messages, it's kind of fun to like play with what these messages might mean. Well, it didn't mean that, but we can't give up because there was just a little bit of truth to it or maybe a reflection of it. Um, I don't know, was that, did you have that experience growing up as well? I don't know if you even grew up in, in Christian context or if that came to you later in life. Yeah, no, I did. I, I was raised in, in evangelical churches and, and certainly dispensationalist. Um, I'm, I'm sure my mother's read The Late Great Planet Earth. Um, yeah. And I, I certainly remember all of that. You know, We were never in a situation where anyone latched onto a specific date, uh, but certainly the idea of, you know, wars and rumors of wars. And so every military conflict is a sign of the end times. Um the, the QR codes are going to be the mark of the yeah, beast. That's right. Credit of, card. So, yeah. <laughs> These days it seems to be the um, Bill Gates is going to inject the mark of the beast into you with his vaccines in the yeah. form of some sort of tracking chip. It, there's always a new iteration of it. Um, and I think you're right. And I talked about this just very briefly in the piece I wrote of the week that there is a, a real resonance here. Um, the way that QAnon folks sort of study the, the, the texts that, that he posts, that Q posts, and the way that they look for correspondence in the headlines is very, very much like the way uh, some some groups of, of evangelical and fundamentalist Christians who, who tend to focus on the end times study scripture. And I think that that's part of why this, this has been such a, a, a fit, that, that we really are finding this among many in my observation, mostly lapsed evangelicals. Like, I don't think that this is as much among people who are, you know, really involved in their churches and, and, and actually, um, you know, hearing good theology on any regular basis. That That's my observation, though. It you may mean not people be that accurate. are actually in, they would self-identify as in the, the church of Q or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... that Again, and this is my perception, but my yeah. perception is that the people who are really hardcore into QAnon, um, who would call also call themselves evangelical, um, probably are not like very active faithful churchgoers. They probably are more culturally. Um, again, could be wrong, but that's that's what I, I've tended to observe. Um, I think there's also resonance there because Q explicitly aligns himself with Christianity. He posts includes Bible verses in his posts with a, a lot of frequency. Um, the Gospel Coalition frequently made re, or recently made a post explaining, you know, what QAnon is and, oh, and why Christians shouldn't, shouldn't get into it. And if you saw on Twitter the, the replies that they got, it was crazy. And, and a frequent thing that people brought up was QAnon can't be bad because he quotes the Bible. How can you call him satanic when he quotes the Bible? Of course, you know, the Bible itself <laughs> says Satan quotes scripture. Um, but there, but yeah, the, 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 the people or person behind the conspiracy theory are very clearly marketing to conservative Christians. And there are those pre-existing resonances there that makes that an easy sell compared to at least other groups in, in our society. Another facet of, um, are probably both our shared childhood experience was in the 80s and 90s. I heard a lot about cults 
and satanic rituals. I don't know how many youth group videos I saw where somebody that claimed to be, and maybe they were, but somebody that claimed to be, you know, f- formerly in a satanic cult sharing about how they sacrificed a goat or, you know, or killed children, all these crazy things that kept me up at night. It was, it was horrible. Some of them were obviously, like I'm talking about, they, they, they actually seem pretty outlandish. And yet, you know, they, there's a hint of truth there. I mean, some of it would get so extreme, and you're probably familiar with this, listeners that are our age or older um, are familiar with even the link between like, hey, don't play Dungeons and Dragons or somehow you're going to end up in one of these satanic cults. Um, I think it probably hurt the believability of historic Orthodox Christian belief in the reality of Satan, principalities, and powers, which I don't deny. I don't deny that that there's the demonic. I don't deny that there's particular things that might be a doorway in people's lives for them to be caught up in the demonic. I, I know I know people that have actually been rescued and set free from that. Very rarely does it sound like what it looks like in those uh, 90s youth group videos. Um, What are some of the ideas that you actually see? I mean, I think we've talked about a little bit with um, just how how this movement latches on to Christian theology by bringing up Bible verses eschatology, end times discussion. Do you see this this QAnon church, this QAnon movement latching on to other ideas in, in, in Christian theology and distorting them? I mean, the Satanism thing, of course, is huge, right? Like the, the, the accusation that uh, people like Hillary Clinton are literal Satanists, maybe performing human sacrifices. Um, and so, yeah, if you if you are a Christian who has a, a robust conception of spiritual warfare, of things happening in the spiritual realm that affect us in our, our physical lives, um, it, that can seem very compelling, I think. Um, and you can certainly find scriptural warrant for it. Um, maybe not, you know, I wouldn't say responsible scriptural warrant, but you can find Bible verses that seem to support it. Um, I think the idea of... Uh, Many QAnon adherents seem to sincerely believe that they're doing a good work, that by decoding this, these messages and spreading the information, um, you know, in a way it's like evangelism. They, mm. they, they really think they're spreading the truth um, in a way that, that as Christians we've very much been trained to do, that if you have good news, you share it, um, you know, for other people's benefit as well as your own. Um, and we also, I, I think, have um, in some of these eschatological obsessions that have happened in the last, I mean, they've been happening throughout Christian history, but in the last yeah. few decades in particular, um, there's this notion of uh, how can we hasten uh, the end times? How can we hasten Christ's return? And so, you know, even in politics, you hear things about like uh, the president, President Trump's decision to move the American embassy to Jerusalem is going to hasten uh, the end times. Um, And people supported it explicitly for that reason. And so coming to the QAnon situation, um, I think people think they're acting in that same way. They think they're doing a good work. They think they're hastening the arrival of justice. They're hastening the defeat of evil. Um, They're supporting Trump in this private heroic campaign against these evildoers, um, evildoers who are aligned with the demonic. And so once you buy in, it, it all seems to fit very nicely with your Christian duty to protect the innocent, to oppose the devil, um, to, to hasten Christ's return. It just all kind of works together. Um, once you sort of make that leap into believing absolutely wild, unverified stuff. And then once you accept it, there seems to be no problem distorting reality to make it fit your your lens. Yeah, I mean, it's, com- it's very confirmation flexible. bias is one of our, our the strongest psychological um, psychological phenomenon we experience. We want we don't want reality around us to be different than we what we perceive because it actually creates a sense in which our existence feels even momentarily threatened. We feel loss of community or identity. And so it's it's hard to confront once we've actually accepted certain propositions as true. It seems really difficult for people to have any sort of evidence that that changes their mind on this stuff. I'm curious, um, Bonnie, how 
these sorts of ideas, which, you know, by and large part, we're talking about things like 4chan and Reddit and how have these ideas spread from fairly obscure corners of the internet to uh, hitting Christians, even those that have never heard of QAnon or Q or any of these things? How do you see these ideas spreading on the internet in social media and affecting those, especially those that might be in predominantly white evangelical contexts? Yeah, the, the 4chan origin is, is very odd to me because the from what I can tell, the vast majority of adherents are not the kind of people you would find on 4chan. They're not the kind of people who would even know that it exists or who would, you know, willingly spend time there. It's a confusing site because everyone is anonymous. It's, you know, it's difficult to tell who is saying what. Um, and ironically, uh, most people who have heard of 4chan and sort of the general public have probably heard about it in connection to child pornography arrests. And so for that to be the, the site where a conspiracy theory about that concerns preventing, you know, the sexual exploitation of children for it to start there is just very strange. Um, I think at this stage, and I, I don't know, you know, necessarily how it spread in the early days. I think at this stage, many people who are coming to it are coming to it on Facebook. Um, they're hearing about it in, in normal internet contexts. Um, and then they are from friends, most likely people that they trust at an individual level. And then from there, if they get into it enough, they may be able to track down those original sources. Um, but plenty of times you'll see, you know, just a screenshot of one of these posts for people to discuss it. They're not necessarily tracking down the original, though, if they get into it enough, they'll want to get updates as soon as they come. So then they would go find wherever he's currently posting. Um, and so the, because it's spread into the normal internet, I think pretty much anyone can be exposed to it at this point. Um, and two things that really help it spread is that, uh, and the Atlantic piece details this really well, um, the QAnon adherents consistently take this attitude of, I'm just researching, I'm just raising questions. I just want to find the truth, whatever that may be don't trust me, do your own research. And so people hear that and they think, well, he's not trying to sell me on anything. He just wants me to find out the truth for myself. And that can be very compelling. Um, and then built into the conspiracy theory itself is of course, this enormous distrust of media and this insistence on satanic involvement. And so that means that anything published in, in the media that contradicts it can simply be written off as, you know, the media is under the control of these powerful evil people and anything at an individual level, you know, if say your spouse or your parent or your child comes and contradicts you and says, I don't think this is right. You should not be involved in this. Well, Satan made them do it. So at every level, there is a way for, um, there's a way to explain away objections and to say, you know, um, evil is making this obstacle. Um, they just don't want me to know the truth that I'm discovering. Would you say there's any particular like Q adjacent ideas that might be growing in popularity in um, circles that, again, would have no idea of the specific movement? But again, we might be thinking of contexts like what I inhabit, which is, pre which is, which is predominantly white evangelical um, where there is a lot of propensity to maybe be attracted to, for whatever reason, attracted to these sorts of like Trump as a political messiah idea. Are there any others that stand out to you as going, hey, you know, if you hear this, if you see this talked about or brought up on Facebook, even if it's not a screenshot of something from 4chan, it could be sort of adjacent to this movement. The biggest one I think um, that people are most likely to encounter is this idea of the deep state. And that's something that, of course, exists in, in you know, normal non-conspiratorial or non-conspiracy theory uh, political conversation. And so the deep state is this this idea that there's, um, you know, we have elected officials who who change and alternate every two to six years. Um, but we also, of course, have a permanent bureaucracy of the federal government, people who aren't elected, career bureaucrats, career diplomats, these sorts of people. Um, and so the deep state supposedly is, is very powerful people in those ranks um, who are not elected by the American public um, and thus in some sense have less accountability to the public 
Um, they're very powerful. They're hyper competent. Um, anytime President Trump wants to do something and then it doesn't happen, they can say, oh, well, the deep state prevented him from doing it. He tried to do it, but they're the people who have to actually, you know, execute his orders and they gummed up the works and refused to do it right. They sabotaged him. Um, and the deep state, it's it's difficult to argue against this idea because it's not it's not utterly false, right? Like the permanent bureaucracy does exist. It is often unaccountable. It does often gum things up. Um, but there's a difference, I think, and, and there are people in it who have politics that differ from the president and politics that differ from, you know, you or I or anyone. Um, and, you know, it's we would be naive to think that they never let those politics influence how they do their jobs. So all of that is true. Um, that does not mean, however, that there is this organized, um, competent, nearly unstoppable deep state group in our government that we can blame for anything and everything that happens. Um, you know, a lot of times in question in politics, the question when we're looking at explanations is, is this a case of people being stupid or evil? Uh, and definitely there are people who are doing things for, for evil reasons, but most of the time it's people are stupid. Um, most of the time it's our government is notoriously wasteful and, you know, bad at doing things. So it's a lack um, of competency instead of, um, you know, yeah, I, I think in, in many cases, we're not dealing with active organized malice. We're dealing with people, you know, we're dealing with problems of, of, of waste and of incompetence and of um, just lack of care that have always existed in our government and are not new. Um, and again, this goes back to what I was saying about the issue of a of wanting a simpler solution than actually exists, right? Because if if there is a deep state and you can just find out who those people are and get them fired or jailed as is whatever is appropriate, that's a, a single simple thing we can do to fix our government. But if the problem is that you have millions of federal employees of varying degrees of competence, some of whom you know should not work there and you also have them complying with uh, so many laws and regulations and then you know the, the working out of the code from what Congress originally writes, just layers on layers of layers of rules, um, you know, not all of which are good. That's a, it's an enormous problem. How, how can you even begin to address that and begin to identify what needs to be changed and, you know, who should be promoted, who should be let go? It's, it's just insurmountable to even think about as an ordinary person with no direct means of influence on any of that. So the level of complexity is really what we're addressing here. It's not that there aren't potentially people that we're not aware of that might have bad intentions that spew up propaganda. I mean, I can imagine some listeners going, hey, Bonnie, Paul, what about the Gulf of Tonkin incident? What about the Iraq war, the false pretense of weapons of mass destruction? You know, they might go down the list on things that we could, you know, the CIA coup that in, in Iran in the 50s, that was like, this legitimately yeah. happened. Why, you know, so if that happens and then they're thinking about most recently, like Epstein, and then like we get hit with this really strange pandemic, right? And now they're going, well, maybe that's something to, I mean, yeah, it's really hard to sift through, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean... These things all exist, um, you know, these things that you're, you've described. I would point out a couple of things, though. One, to take the, the war in Iraq, for example, um, that happened, you know, fully with the participation and, and at the instigation of elected officials. That wasn't, you know, unelected Defense Department bureaucrats made President Bush go into Iraq. But he and his people that he was elected to to pick for his cabinets for the one who, who led that effort. Um, and likewise, when we look at things like CIA coups, like that does not happen without the permission of the president. They're not just operating independently. Um, and, and so this, this interest in sort of absolving um, politicians, public faces that we know and like, and blaming it all on these shadowy anonymous figures, that's very lazy. And it allows us to avoid responsibility for the people that we put in office. Um, to people who are acting with our voted approval in many cases and in our names. Um, so I don't like that shifting of responsibility um, for the very real and, and evil things our government has done. Um, but I would, and, and you won't, 
I mean, I'm a libertarian. I, I don't go light on the government. I think it does a lot of bad things all the time. Um, there are very few cases where I will be writing something and say, look, the government did good here. Um, and so I, I don't come to this as, you know, like blind to yeah, the, yeah. the bad things that the government does, but there is, there is very rarely, um, a case. And, and the reason these stories become so famous is because they're not the norm. Most of the time when the government does bad things, be they um, bad because of actual evil, you know, malice or because of negligence or, or some combination of the two, most of the time it happens in plain sight. I mean, I don't know how you can look at the state of our country and the state of our politics and need to find more evil. We have enough to deal with right now. We have enough things that are in plain sight that no one is bothering to conceal. No one is bothering to, to, to hide away from us. Um, they're just all right out there. And so if you're looking for, you know, things to fix in politics, there is a lot to start with. And then, yeah, maybe we will find some conspiracies along the way. That's, that's totally possible. Conspiracies do happen. Um, but I think most conspiracy theorizing tends to want to overlook um, the actual complexity of the situation to shift away responsibility that we may have for what has happened um, and to basically avoid doing the hard work of real identified problems that no one can dispute are happening to focus on imagined problems that, yeah, like with the Epstein case, maybe it does turn out that he didn't kill himself, but there, there, we can start working on dealing with jailhouse suicides without settling that. Hmm, that's a great point. There's plenty of things on the list to do that we can tackle that aren't um, don't take some sort of special knowledge <laughs> to be able to address, right? And I think there's a comparison there. You know, we've been making this comparison to to some Christians' focus on eschatology. I think there's a comparison there as well. Um, this is why, as much as you know, I, I have an eschatology, obviously, and I think that matters and should influence how I think about God and His plans for the world. Um, I would never want to be fixating on is this or that event and a sign of the end times? Because what does it, what does it really change about what my responsibilities are in daily life? It doesn't change anything. I don't have, you know, different directions from God if the end times are happening. And I think in, in politics, a, a lot of that is the same. Um, you know, what we should be doing, what we should be working for, doesn't really change in many cases. If there's, um, you know, some, some, someone behind the scenes making this evil happen versus what we can see just in plain sight. As you were talking, I just thought about how this is really like the perf perfect storm for the, the the election of Donald Trump, right? And you just go through U.S. history and people that have been on the left or on the right, they've been frustrated with the way that government has acted maliciously in the world and has maybe even attempted to cover it up, whether that's you know, falsely claiming there's weapons of mass destruction, you know, whether it was the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which moved people into being supportive of the Vietnam War, CIA coups, and you, you name the things that are established, we can actually um, verify without secret knowledge. And you can kind of see how there's this appeal of, well, it's happened in every administration. And so what we really need is this outsider to come in who's not part of the system. And he's the one that can take down the deep state. I've just been so fascinated. And again, I, this isn't, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not on the left. I'm not on the right. I, you know, I'm a pastor. I, I'm not, I'm not afforded to be allowed really public political opinions without it becoming divisive in my, my church community. But I would just say, I have found it fascinating, this shift over the last few years from many Christians going, I'm, I'm holding my nose and voting for Trump as someone that goes, you know, I just think, Compared to Hillary, I'd rather have this. And I, I, you know, personally, that wouldn't have been my perspective. Um, I didn't, wouldn't have liked either of them. But uh, I could see how somebody could go there to this really almost messianic movement. We, you know, we've talked on this podcast over the last couple of years about the rise of substitute religions emerging as secularism erodes traditional religious structures. With your background in Christian thought at Bethel, you no doubt explored the work of Charles Taylor and the Secular Age thesis, and we've covered 
that quite a bit on this podcast. Uh, how does the the QAnon movement act as one of these substitute religions in a secular age? Well, it does it in two senses, I think. One is in the broad sense. Um, it, it sort of can function to fill a lot of the needs that people traditionally would have filled at church. Um, things like giving you a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, gives you a community. Many of the, the people um, who are profiled in, in reports on QAnon, they come off as just very lonely. Um, they, one woman, I, I remember uh, reading a quote, she would say that she would uh, go on places like Twitter and just browse QAnon hashtags, trying to make friends, basically. She, she mm. wanted people to talk to. Um, and so I, I think in that sense, for, for many people, it, it fills those needs that previously would have been filled in more traditional religious contexts, be that church or something else. Um, and a smaller scale, and, and this was what um, I wrote about a lot in my article, there's this really interesting situation where there actually is a, a church of QAnon. Like they explicitly describe themselves that way. They've started holding they Sunday services. They actually call themselves the church? They do. They started holding Sunday services. They're doing it um, remotely because this is a, a, I think they're not all in the same place. And this is mostly something that's been happening during the, the pandemic. So they couldn't necessarily gather together in person anyway. Um, but they, they have prayer, they take communion, um, and then they study scripture and, and Q texts together and they use one to interpret the other. Um, and so it's, it's explicitly becoming a religion at that point. Now, whether, you know, QAnon, most people have not heard of it. Most people who are involved in it are not involved in this little congregation. Um, but it, they, they, they seem intent on, on spreading. Um, I cited the, the work of a, a PhD student who is, who has attended these services for several weeks. Um, and he, his report is that essentially they're trying to train their congregants to then start house churches um, of QAnon in their own area. And there are several hundred congregants. So you can see how that could spread mm. quite quickly if they are successful. Um, so yeah, for the vast majority of, of QAnon people, it's, it's filling religious needs, but not necessarily, um, it's not making sort of like the transcendent claims that a religion typically will, but there is the shift in at least this one small corner of it where they are explicitly becoming a religious movement. I wonder too, if because there is the sense in America, I've argued this quite a bit that, and this is not just my own idea, you know, Leslie Newbegin, Charles Taylor, James K. Smith, I've talked about this too, that in the sort of the vacuum of the secular age, what ends up rising uh, uh, to the surface as the the new guiding story, the new religious framework often becomes the state and politics. And that provides people with their moral compass, their narrative by which they interpret the world. And I just wonder if this is just such an easy transition because a lot of people have not actually, even those in the church, have not been able to break away from their partisan political allegiances. They've not been able to actually divorce themselves from uh, uh, politics as religion and even have without knowing maybe participated in liturgical practices which reinforce that idea um, you know and I, I know some people get upset when I talk about this one and you don't have to agree with me on this one Bonnie it's just fine you can disagree with me as well but I've often wondered about the the formative practice of putting one's hand over their heart as they pledge allegiance to a flag and singing a, an, an anthem in a football stadium. Not that those things are inherently evil, but I've wondered about the formative ability of those practices to actually shape a guiding story in which my allegiance is actually to my political perspective first, and then I fit my, um, my Christian narrative to somehow... Um, somehow fit within that box. And I just wonder if this kind of movement, it's actually, um, for many people, it's more of the same. It's just in a, just the energies are invested into a, a specific, even much more specific niche of this sort of politics as religion. What, what do you think about that? I think you're right. Um, I know you said I don't have to agree, but I, I do yeah. agree. Uh, I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I, I Maybe this will make more people angry, but I think it's no, idolatrous okay. to yeah. pledge allegiance to anything but God as a Christian. Um, I, I guess I haven't been in a situation um, 
a gathering where I would have to be expected to sing the national anthem um, as an adult. Um, I don't really go to sports games, um, but you know, certainly the, the, the question of the Pledge of Allegiance uh, is a major consideration. Our, our children are not school age yet, but I do not want to send them to a school where, especially when they're very young and when it's difficult to understand the reasoning for our thinking on that. And when, you know, peer pressure is strong and you don't want to be the weirdo who doesn't say the Pledge of Allegiance, I don't want them to be at a school where that's expected, if that's at all possible. Um, certainly not expected on a daily basis in the classroom as it was for much of my education. Um, and yeah, I, I actually have a, an article coming out about this at, at Christianity Today uh, sometime soon. Um, there's a, a forthcoming book called uh, Strange Rights, um, R-I-T-E-S, mm-hmm. um, by an author named Tara Isabella Burton. And she deals with this. Um, I don't, she does not use QAnon as an, as an example of the movements she explores, but she uses a lot of, um, she uses several other like political social movements. Um, and that what I'm arguing in the, the Christianity Today piece is that it's more identifiable in these newer movements that may seem, you know, uh, weird to, to people who are not involved. There's something new. We're not used to them. And so it's, it's easier, I think, with these things like QAnon to point to that and see like, you know, the way you're interacting with that, that is uh, you're, you're making politics, you're putting it above your faith. Um, but I think the, it's it's happened with far more ordinary politics and you can be just as idolatrous as a just a very mainstream, normal Republican or Democrat. And in some ways it's more insidious, I think, because we uh, tend to latch on to just sort of big picture ideas about patriotism in America, um, things that no matter what you believe theologically or, or politically, it, to some degree, it's ingrained, you know, to yeah. some degree, anyone who's grown up in the United States, when you start to hear the Star Spangled Banner, you might feel that little start of tears, right? Like if it's, if it's mm-hmm. played right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't really control that. It's, it's so ingrained in you at that point. Um, and I think it's, it's a, a, a lifelong um, task to interrogate how you're interacting with politics and interrogate how you're interacting with things that um, patriotism, especially that in some ways doesn't even seem political, like it seems pre-political, uh, but still can be just as much a competitor for our allegiance um, and, and a recipient of allegiance that it, it does not deserve. Um, we we have that that quote from Jesus about no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and, and mammon, money. Um, but it's equally true. You can't serve God in the state. You can't serve God in America. Um, and that's not to say that you can't have money equally. It's not to say you can't be an American and participate in politics. I, I write about politics for a living. Obviously, I don't think you can't participate in politics. Um, but the question of allegiance and the question of how we identify and conceive of ourselves and what we think is most important um, is something that we should always be asking, especially in a country where, like ours, where politics is such a huge and growing part of our lives. It's really well said. Yeah, thank. I appreciate you being open to maybe sharing, putting you on the spot there with the, uh, with that. You, so far, you've in this conversation, Bonnie, you've been primarily acting as a reporter of the way things are, at least as you've seen them in the world. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd love to just. Con- Conclude today with a final question that might be a bit more of advice from your perspective, and people can can take it or leave it. Um, people don't want to be completely naive about the possibility of these powerful malevolent forces who distort the truth, but they also don't want to live as anxiety written anxiety written conspiracy mongers whose biases are always distorting the truth to fit their narrative lens. What advice would you give, and maybe particularly to those who are claiming to be followers of the way of Jesus as to how to best navigate those two ditches? Oh, man. Um, Well, a a couple things. Um, One thing I think is just that, you know, we we don't want to... I I attend a Mennonite church, and so traditionally Anabaptists have tended towards to separate ourselves from, you know, the world precisely to avoid its evils. Um, And I, I, there's a lot, obviously, that I I support about that, but I I think um, just pretending it doesn't exist, of course, is not the solution. And so 
coming, especially if we're going to be engaging with conspiracy theories like this, I think the most important thing is to not downplay the reality of evil, including in our government. Um, you don't have to look very far in, in history or in current events to find um, plenty of, of evil things and, and plenty of things to oppose and to, to acknowledge that that stuff is there. Um, and, you know, as Christians, this should be especially easy. We, we believe in a, a world marred by sin, right? And, and no institution, including the state, is immune to that. Um, in terms of, of more practical things, um, you know, one thing I think is to, again, to interrogate our allegiances, uh, to, to interrogate things that we're coming to believe um, in light of scripture, in light of uh, things we know to be true, um, and things that are far more time-tested than whatever the latest article you read happens to be. Um, there's that really great uh, C.S. Lewis passage about you should read old books because they we can perceive their errors, because the errors of other ages, because we've moved past those errors um, while still gleaning the good things. Whereas in our own age, we, we're probably falling prey to the same errors that everyone else is. And so it's harder for us to discern the truth in the moment than looking at other times. And so of course, you know, scripture would be the paramount example of an old book in that sense where we, the, the truth of that is time tested. It's not, uh, and, and in terms of there are, you know, obviously ideas and people in scripture, especially in the narrative count, accounts where it's saying what happened, not, you know, endorsing what happened or saying to imitate that we can see and reject the evil there. Um, more easily than we might be able to in our own hearts and in our own society. So I think that sort of seeking of perspectives that are, are different from our own, whether that be chronologically or, or even from other parts of society today, other parts of the world, perhaps, that can be very useful to provide um, an outside perspective instead of getting sucked into our own little moments and our own um, culture and biases. Um, on, a, on a more practical basis, I think it's useful for many people to pick a relatively small handful of political issues that you care about, become educated about those, and honestly, mostly ignore the rest. You can't be an expert on everything, um, and it is far worse to know a little bit about all the things that are going on than to know a lot about a few things. Um, we feel this, this obligation from social media, especially, that uh, we need to weigh in. We need to give our opinion on whatever is going on. Um, but you you can't be well informed about everything that's going on unless you're doing this full time. Even if you're doing it full time, I read about politics for a living. Um, I think I've written one article on healthcare ever. I don't because I don't know about I don't know about insurance yeah. policy. Yeah. I, that's outside my area of expertise. And we need to be comfortable saying about probably most things that is outside my area of expertise. You know, here's generally where I lean. Here's my instincts. Here's, you know, sort of the, maybe the, the theology or the sort of bigger political principles that are pushing me that way. But I, re I really don't know much about that. And that's not to say it's unimportant. It's just to say that we have limited attention spans and you can't know everything. And it's better to know one thing well than many things badly um, and to accidentally perhaps spread misinformation on those things. Um, so yeah, I think that's my, my biggest piece of sort of practical advice is just narrow your attention and know some things well, be able to speak competently on a few things and just like admit your ignorance on the others. That's okay. Mm, that's some great advice, Bonnie. Thanks for sharing that. It's been such a joy to talk to you. This is, uh, as you share that advice, this has been a domain that is outside of my expertise. <laughs> so it's such a, so encouraging to hear from, from you in this area. And uh, hopefully there's other issues in this sort of domain of, of, of politics and the, and the world come up. I, I'd hope you'd come on again sometime and, and have another discussion. I really enjoyed this today. Yeah, well, thank you. And and I'd be happy to do that as long as it's not a uh, healthcare and some other <laughs> things too as well. One, yeah. I'll let you know. <laughs> what, are, what are some ways people can uh, connect with you? And I'll make sure to include, um, you know, all the relevant links in the, the show notes of this podcast. Yeah, um, well, you can sort of, um, the, the easiest way to find like a lot of stuff that I've been writing and doing is at my website, bonniechristian.com. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter. My handle there is bonniechristian as well. Um it's a terrible website, but it seems in journalism, you have to be on there. So unfortunately I am. 
Um, and I, I try to be, you know, pretty good about responding to, to people there. Um, certainly some messages get lost in the, the fury, but um, for the most part, yeah, I'd love to, to interact with people if they want to come talk there. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks again, Bonnie. We'll, I'd love to do this again sometime, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Okay, great. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And I want to give an extra special thanks to the Deep Talks Patreon community for making this podcast possible. Shout out to those in the Theology 201 contribution level, people like Eli, Mark, Luke, Tim, Paul, Josie. Thank you for joining Josie this month and the many others in the Deep Talks Patreon community. I can't do this without you. If you're enjoying this podcast, maybe you've been listening for a while and you're thinking, hey, I'd love to support this. You can do that by going over and checking out my Patreon page and becoming a contributor at whatever level you see fit. You can start off even just at $2 a month. I'm telling you, if everybody that listened to this supported uh, at even that level, it would make a tremendous impact on our lives and our ability to do other things with this podcast that uh, we're looking to do in the future. So check that out. You can check out my Patreon page. Again, the link is in the description. You can also just support this by doing something as simple as leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's still right now the number one place people are going to find podcasts. So your reviews help other people discover it. It kind of messes with the algorithm and pushes things that are more reviewed to the front of people's uh, perceptions or what they perceive on on Apple Podcasts. But if you listen on another platform, you want to leave a review there, you're more than welcome to do that too. So I appreciate you doing that. As always, I also want to make sure that all of you know that at any time on Twitter, or if you are a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can send me a message. uh, You can tweet at me with questions, even differences of opinion. Maybe there's something that you disagreed with in today's podcast. Maybe you're like, hey, you're, you guys are totally missing this. This conspiracy is spot on. But sure, I'd love to hear from you. We can exchange ideas and I'd love to hear your perspective. Whatever the case may be, uh, this is nowhere near as fun for me without actually dialoguing with you on the other side of this microphone together. So again, maybe Twitter might be the social media platform I'm most active on. But if you're a member of Deep, the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can always send me a message over there. I respond to everybody that's a member and uh, make sure that your, your questions are addressed. So finally, and perhaps most importantly, I want to invite you today to make a contribution in light of the events happening in my city here in Minneapolis and also St. Paul, but also in cities around the country to make a contribution to a local fund here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. It's called the One Fund. The One Fund exists to support the work of local African-American churches and ministries whose communities, due to historic inequities, are disproportionately impacted by the recent crises in the Twin Cities. These inequities caused by things like systematic injustice have been clearly exposed again in the midst of COVID-19, and the traumatic events surrounding the death of George Floyd. So I'd invite you to consider supporting that fund. These are these churches that are being supported. Um, I've heard from many of the pastors over the past couple of weeks, pastors like uh, Reverend Richard Coleman at Wayman African Methodist Episcopal Church. These are people that have key ownership stakes in the city, and they've been doing the long, hard work and They could use your support in the midst of this. So if you're going to give somewhere, anywhere, uh, I would encourage you to give to this fund. You can check that out. I have a link in the description. You can see the fund advisors. Um, You can see the legitimacy of, of of this fund. It's in partnership with Transform Minnesota, and I, I highly recommend it. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, we'll talk again soon.